0: Hey, good morning to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falking Around Podcast. Thanks for joining us this Tuesday morning. Adding Facebook live to our platforms. Why not? Join in, join the discussion. Hope you're having had a good week. If you're a Bills fan, probably not so much. Syracuse fan, probably not so much. But if you're a golf fan, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And in December, if you're a golf fan, fan or golfer having a light at the end of the tunnel is is a good thing so we'll talk about that I'm going to give a Sabres update I haven't talked about them in a couple of weeks but uh, looked at that and whew, yeah we'll talk about that but I want to start of course with the Bills Bucks game Sunday afternoon and you know this was one of those games that at the beginning of the year anyone who went through the schedule wins losses I don't think many people expected this to be a Bills win. I don't think many people looked at this game as a good matchup with Vitave and Dominic and Sue in the middle of that D-line for the Bucks. You figured the interior of the Bills offensive line, which is terrible, let's call it as it is, there was going to be a disadvantage. And in the first half of that game, it was clear and obvious that the Bills didn't match up with the Buccaneers and Tom Brady was efficient and they got things done offensively, defensively, Josh Allen running for his life. And as the game went on, you obviously saw some good things from the Bills. And and, and yes, it's seven and six now, four games left in the season, a a tough loss followed by a, a, a tough loss. Yeah, things are spiraling a little bit. But, man, if you didn't watch that game and come away with the thought that Josh Allen is your franchise quarterback and the guy to lead this franchise, then I don't know what to tell you because there have been few performances that I've seen recently in the NFL that have made me feel better about a player than Sunday's loss did make me feel about Josh Allen. He literally left it on the field. We say that all the time. I oh, left it all out there, played his heart Josh Allen did everything he possibly could have to come home with a win. He literally dragged that team with him and nearly got it done. And, and, and this... In my opinion, in spite of a defense that didn't play a first half, they did not show up again. The defensive-minded and defensive coordinator head coach, Sean McDermott, did everything he could to prevent Allen from winning that game, in my opinion. And frankly, the organization has let him down. So there are a lot of things. We could look at this many ways. It's one game. It's it's one game after a bad division loss and a and a windy night or we could see a trend and we can see indications of what's going on in Buffalo. And to me, the trend is this and and it starts and ends defensively. I think we know now what the offense is going to give us and I could sit here and make a case for the Bills not being multiple, the Bills needing to be able to run the ball better. They absolutely do. If going into your game, you know your opponent can only do one thing, and the Bills can only do one thing right now. That's throw the football, and that's Josh Allen. If that's all you have to worry about, then you could plan your defense much differently. However, if there's a threat of a running game, you can't play nickel personnel all the time. And it makes it more difficult to defend the pass. So by becoming multiple offensively, the Bills lessen the burden for them to achieve. Again, it's all of what you want. But to me, the failures of this team and this organization right now are on the defensive side of the ball. And it's the running game. And I know the question... Were you embarrassed by this to Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde? You're asking the wrong two guys. Hyde and Poyer, for the most part this year, have been great all year. Jordan Poyer has played an unbelievable year at safety, and I think Hyde has as well. Poyer's been better, but Hyde's been great. They are the wrong two guys to ask this question. The right people are the people in the middle of the line. Now, I talked very good about Ed Oliver last week. I'm not going to talk good about him this week cuz Jansen just owned Ed Oliver in this game. Oliver Pat, the Hope our kid played a great game at right guard for Tampa yet again. The interior of that bucks line protected Brady and created space for Leonard Fournette. That's over and over again what we're hearing. Now, I'm on board with that Oliver that's the one Bills D-lineman I see that I want long-term. Russo's going to grow into a nice player, I think. A nice player. Not a good player. Not a real good player. A nice player. If he's on your team, okay, good. He's he's good, effective player. I don't see a pass-rushing genius. I don't see a, a physical freak. I see a nice player. A- and that's his upside. Addison, Hughes. They're probably both gone after this year. Appanenza, eh, at times. But how about this? In the middle of that D-line, where you have Ed Oliver and either Harrison Phillips, who played pretty well Sunday, I'll give him that, or Star Latulale when he decides he can play, or Vernon Butler, who, why? Yeah, exactly. You've spent all this money and all those draft picks to build that D-line. The middle of your defense is another first-round pick in Tremaine Edmonds who makes so few impactful plays, I can't see that he's somebody that the Bills are going to re-sign. Think of Tremaine Edmonds' biggest play of his career. I would say Matt Milano had two bigger plays on Sunday and two more impactful plays than Tremaine Edmonds has had in his entire career. I don't think Edmonds is a bad bad player. I just don't think he's a player worth a first-round pick and worth the money that it's going to take to re-sign him after next year. Frankly, I don't think he's worth the fifth-year option that the Bills extended to him for next year. And I think that's a big problem. And if you don't agree with what I'm saying, let me throw this at you. Because running game stats are basically about the middle of the defense. that's where the the running game attacks generally in the middle of the defense and that's the Bill's weakness. How weak? the bills are now seven and six in their six losses, they have given up 923 yards rushing in their six losses. That's an average of 154 yards per game. in their seven wins, they've given up 499 yards rushing or an average of 71 yards per game. It's an 83-yard-per-game difference between the wins and losses. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. And when you're up big, the other team stops running, and the Bills have had some games like that. But think about this. They've only won... One game where they've given up 100 yards plus rushing, and that was against Kansas City. They gave up 120. And with Kansas City, you'd much rather give up the rush yards because they'll kill you quickly in the pass game. With the run game, KC could kill you slowly and keep you in the game. So it's it's a choice. And again, Kansas City's multiple. They can do both. So what do you choose? I really think when you look at the defense... That's the biggest factor. Now, there's another factor, too. And this, to me, comes down to pass rush. The Bills have seven wins, as I mentioned. In those seven wins, the defense has 23 takeaways. It's over three per game. In the six losses, they have three takeaways. Again, you could look at that for a lot of factors. But to me, it's all about the pass rush, and the pressure rate. And where does that come from? The front seven. The Bills' front seven is subpar this year in terms of what they've produced. Yet, you've got a high free agent in Mario Addison, one of the highest paid players in Jerry Hughes, a first-round pick, in Gregory Rousseau, a first-round pick in Ed Oliver, another high free agent in Star Tulele, two second-round picks in Boogie Basham and A.J. Eponenza, a third-round pick in Harrison Phillips. And if you want to go to the linebacker position again as part of the front seven, even though the Bills don't really play a front seven, it's more of a front six because they generally go with a two-linebacker setup, they're daring teams to run on them, and teams are more than happy to do so because it's easy to do. So in the first half of the game, Tampa's running the ball. Leonard Fournette gets a long touchdown. And of course, well, if you take that touchdown out of it, he didn't have such a good game. Well, he did have a touchdown and he did have a good game. 113 yards and a touchdown on only 19 carries. Yeah, I'll take that if I'm Tampa. It's pretty good. You'd be more than happy to take it. But the other part of it is this. You look at Josh Allen's numbers. And I I mentioned Allen played his ass off. The fourth player in history to have 300 yards passing, 100 yards rushing. He was hit 11 times. Tampa recorded 11 quarterback hits in that game. They sacked him three times. 11 quarterback hits. Yet Josh Allen kept dragging himself back to the huddle. He's got a bad foot left in a walking boot. And played to the point where he should have gotten a win. Should have. It's just amazing. Now, Brady, on the other hand, and credit Brady for this. And I don't, I'm not a Brady guy. He's the greatest of all time, but I don't like rooting for the guy. The fact is, Brady gets the ball out quick because his pre-snap reads are so good. He's still got a can. the, The touchdown pass to Mike Evans was a thing of beauty. That was an absolute rocket out of a forty-five year, 44-year-old guy. Unbelievable what he did. But think about this, too. Brady was only hit four times and sacked twice. Would you rather be hit 11 times or four? Josh Allen grew up a Brady fan, has great admiration for Tom Brady, so I'm sure that moment right there that we just showed them meeting after the game had to be very meaningful to him. But in the moment, he just lost a heartbreaking game. And as much as the organization hasn't helped him by putting an offensive line in front of him that could pass protect or run block for that matter, I think the coaching staff has let him down as well. And this is Sean McDermott. Look, we all love McDermott. He's turned this thing around. He's made the Bills contenders. But his in-game coaching remains so below average, it's really troubling. Two situations late in this game when the Bills looked like they were going to get beat. You're down coming out at halftime 24-3. First drive of the second half. Fourth and two from your own 45-yard line. You're not going to go for it? Do you want to just not win that game? I know there was a lot of time left, and you can say, well, it worked out. Did it, though? They still lost the game. So did it work out? I know they got to overtime, but how can you say it worked out when they lost the game? And go with a fake punt? Give me a freaking break. If you go with a fake punt there, guess what? You know what Tampa's thinking? Watch the fake. Of course you're watching the fake. It's fourth and two. The score's twenty-four to three. Everyone's watching the fake. When Breida got that ball, I was like, yeah, couldn't couldn't see that coming. Surprised they didn't try to draw him offside because that's another McDermott specialty. He didn't have the balls to go for it there, and that's sorry. That's not a championship coach right there. When you don't have the balls to go for it, if you trust your defense, and that's an important part of the next part that I'm going to get to, if you truly trust your defense, you have no problem going for it there. But yet McDermott goes through the fake punt. So you take the ball out of your best player's hands, Josh Allen, and you hope to get lucky on a gimmick play. It's just not smart football. It's not good football. It's not winning football. Then later in the game, two minutes left in the third quarter. You have a situation where it's eerily similar. Fourth and three from the 45-yard line. You're down at the time 24-10. to 10, And you decide to punt again? Dick Jerron is watching this game going, what are you doing? Go for it. It was horrible. It truly Was horrible. And I don't know why McDermott continues to come back with these type of answers. Well, I trusted my defense. That's why I went for it. Or that's why I punted. If you truly trust your defense, you go for it. Because you know your defense is going to get it done. You didn't trust your defense. That's not why you went for it. McDermott's in-game coaching is so far below average, it's just not going to help anytime soon. And that's a problem going forward. I think the Bills this season problems are fixable. I really do. You've got talent to build and fill in around. But with the inability to coach up things during the game. Now, I'll give them this. That was about as good of a halftime adjustment, both offensively and defensively, that Sean McDermott has ever made. He truly hasn't been very good at in-game adjustments. Sunday he was, and they were very good. Now, there's another part of this late in the game that I don't necessarily agree with, But I read an article about it, and I thought, you know, it's interesting enough that I'm going to put it out there. When the Bills scored to make it 24 to 10, I'm sorry, 24 to 17, they had an opportunity to decide whether or not you're going, it's 27 to 17, I'm sorry. When it was 27 to 17, they had an opportunity to kick an extra point to make it a 10-point game, two-score game. Or they could have gone for two. Now, the logic is this. If you're down 11 at that point, which you were, it's 27 to 16 with the extra point pending. If you go for two, it's now 27 to 18. You're down nine. If you make it, if you miss it, you're still down 11. And if you figure that, and statistically it's true, that going for two is a 50-50 proposition. You're going to need to score another touchdown, field goal, and then another two-point conversion, and you could tie it up again. However, if you go for it and get it, you're only down nine, then a touchdown and field goal would give you a win. So, again, the theory is by going for it early, the two-point conversion that is, you're going to need another touchdown, which you have a chance to go for a two point conversion again. If it's a 50 50 proposition, statistically, of course, you should make at least one of those. If you make the first one, though, you kick the extra point on the second one, and then a field goal would win it. And of course, when they scored later, they had the same choice go for the two point conversion, then a field goal wins it. And if you think towards the end of the game, Or if not, you've got four-down territory from the four-yard line. So McDermott, old school, not aggressive, not somebody who's going to think out of the box analytically, he's never going to do that. I don't know that it's the right call. I'm presenting the case as the article that I read mentioned because statistically that was in, in analytics minds The worst decisions regarding going for two of this week. Sean McDermott not doing it two times late in the fourth quarter. Now, there's one other aspect to this game that I haven't yet touched on, and I will now. It's the officiating. Yes, it was freaking horrible. Stephon Diggs was held badly in the middle of the field. We've all seen this still photograph of the Bucks player holding his jersey. That's a foul 100 out of 100 times. There is no question that's a foul. Got to be called. Can't miss it. Simply from an officiating standpoint, here's my words, can't happen. How do you not let that call go? Bills Mafia has taken up big for the officiating. The third and two play following a, a nearly unbelievable run by Josh Allen. Josh had an opportunity to get a block, didn't get that block. Had he done so, I think he scores on the second and seven play that created the third and two. But the third and two play where they throw a back shoulder to Diggs, the Bucks defender grabs his jersey in the front it pulls him, doesn't allow him to spin back around, and there's no flag. Now, everyone's upset at the official standing on the goal line looking at the play and doesn't call. it. That official, and here's officiating Insight 101. When you are officiating a play between two players, the best way to officiate that play is to see through the two bodies. If you look at the back of one player, you need to look through that player to see what the other player is doing. It's impossible to do. Here's the still of the poll. Now, the official I'm speaking of is on the goal line looking at the back of Stefan Diggs. No possible way he can see that. However, this is a freaking NFL. There's an end zone official in the middle of the field looking over at that play, and he should have a clear look at it. And again, it's up to the official to move, to get an angle, to see through the play. Didn't happen on this play. Didn't get that call. A horrible miss, because that makes it with, I believe, 27 seconds left in the game. That makes it First and goal from the one. Bills have four chances. And with Josh Allen, to me, that's two runs, two rollouts. You either throw it or run it twice. I'll take my chances in that game with that situation. It's a big, big miss. And then previous to the 58-yard game winner to Brashard Perryman was the Levi Wallace call. The NFL needs to do something about this, and this isn't a Bills situation. This is a NFL wide receivers are smart and being coached to do this situation. When a ball is underthrown, jump back into the defender, grab him, create contact. You get the flag almost every time. That's a terrible, terrible call. I'll actually contend that the Levi Wallace call was a worse call than the miss on the Stefan Diggs call. Because if there is a foul on that call, it's absolutely on Mike Evans for grabbing Levi Wallace. There's no doubt that's the situation that should be called. But it was not. Here you see Wallace pull, being pulled towards Evans. And again, looking back at the ball here. That's another factor. Remember a few weeks ago, the Antonio Brown or Anthony Brown situation of the Dallas Cowboys, where he didn't look back, but Zay Jones pulled him towards him, got the flag. Wallace looked back. He did everything he was supposed to do. If you do everything you're supposed to do and don't create contact, I don't see how it could possibly be a call. Now, what's the elephant in the room? NFL? Oh, yeah, the sky judge. That my friend Mike Pereira has been trying to push down the NFL's throat for two, three years now. And they won't go for it for whatever reason. If there's a sky judge, not a doubt in my mind, throws a flag on the Diggs play and picks up the flag on the Wallace play. Here's another thing. The Bills... Bills Mafia thinks the Bills are getting screwed. They think they're not getting the benefit of the calls. They think Diggs is getting treated like a rookie, rookie wide receiver. They might have a point. The Bills have had only six coverage penalties called for them all year. I should say six accepted. There have been 11 total coverage penalties for the Bills this year. Three of them had an offsetting element, and two of them were declined because the pass was completed. Six calls. Josh Allen threw the ball 52 times on or 54 times on Sunday. The Bucks didn't hold once. They didn't interfere one time. There was that one time that a Buccaneer D back did anything illegal. 54 passes. It's worse. You know what? The last time the Bills had a call in coverage, Thanksgiving. That's the New England game. That's the New Orleans game. Uh, what do you? How do you explain that? There are different things that can be explained, and I'll use the basketball analogy. A lot of times, team will play a zone defense and shoot a lot of jump shots. If you shoot a lot of jump shots, you likely don't get a lot of fouls called. For you, you get fouls called when you take it to the hole. You play tight man to man, you're likely to get more fouls called on you than if you call and then if you play a zone defense. The Bills threw the ball 54 times. That one time did anything illegal happen in the secondary for Tampa Bay. A secondary, by the way, that's banged up, has a bunch of replacements back there, isn't made up of all pros, yet. The Bills, who have a very good receiving core, couldn't get one call. It's unbelievable if you think about it. It really and truly makes you wonder. And again, the fact it's Brady, the fact that Brady gets the calls, the fact that nobody gets the calls going against Brady, the conspiracy theorists are out in mass after this one. It was a bad situation Sunday. That said... If you want to take the positive outlook, look look at this. The Bills played their asses off, got back in the game. They had no business winning and almost pulled off a huge win on the road to secure their playoff position. If you want to take the pessimistic view, it's the same thing that's been happening again and again. They didn't stop the run. They didn't get going fast enough offensively. They don't run the ball except for with Josh Allen, although Singletary had over 50 yards on four carries. I just I don't understand a game plan that your first carry by anyone other than your quarterback is a fake punt. It's not a good strategy. It makes it too easy defensively to win that game. It, it just does for Tampa. So there's a lot going on. There's one other thing that I got to bring up, too. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have turned this thing around and assembled a very nice roster. And I get it that nobody's perfect in the draft. There's always going to be hits and misses. Jimmy Johnson, in my opinion, was the greatest talent evaluator there ever was. He had misses. He had early misses. Remember Alexander Wright? Yeah, he was the guy who was going to be the best wide receiver of all time. Until he wasn't. Everyone misses. However, I want you to think about this. The inactives on Sunday. Vernon Butler and his $7.5 million salary was inactive. He should have been cut in training camp or traded, moved on from. Why are you paying a guy not to work at a position of need? It's tying up your resources. Two second-round draft picks were inactive Sunday. Boogie Basham and Cody Ford. Now, Ford's a miss. We all know that. That's a bust. That's a bad pick. Is Basham a bad pick, too? Is that another second-round pick miss by Brandon Bean? That's rough. And a third-round pick, Zach Moss. After you took a third round pick the year before to play running back, Zach Moss comes in as a third round running back. He's inactive yet again this month, this game. It's just not a good team building thing when you're missing early in the draft. And since McDermott has been in charge, they've missed on, in my opinion, if Boogie Basham's the third, at least three second round picks. Zay Jones was a big miss. Cody Ford was a big miss. And it looks like Boogie Basham's going to be a miss. Three second round picks. You can't build a championship team missing on guys in the second round. For every Taron Johnson, a great fourth round pick, and every Matt Milano, a phenomenal fifth round pick, you've got to nail your first and second round picks. And I won't call Tremaine Edmonds a miss, but he's certainly not paying off. He's certainly not being the guy he was drafted to be. So there's definitely some issues at one Bill's drive, and and it extends all the way to the top, unfortunately. Now, four games left. Carolina this week. If Josh goes, I think this is a win. New England next week should be a great rematch. Should be a very good game. If the Bills don't play eight in the box and dare Mac Jones to beat them, then I've lost all confidence in Sean McDermott. Then the final two games at Buffalo, Atlanta, and the Jets need to get four wins, in my opinion, or this is going to be a non playoff year. The Bills could win out and not make the playoffs. But in my opinion, they got to go 4-0 down the stretch. And now the question is going to be, can they do so without Josh Allen being 100%? They've lost four of their last six games. It's not a good situation whatsoever. Around the league for week 14, the Vikings-Steelers played Thursday night. and There were three games like this this weekend that were over dead right up the story until they weren't. This was the first of them. Dalvin Cook, who had a hurt shoulder, was questionable, likely not to play, had his second best game of his career, 205 yards, two touchdowns. But in this game, Ben Roethlisberger, to me, played the best game he's played in three years. He got the crap kicked out of him in this game. The Steelers' offensive line was terrible. Ben took hit after hit after hit, yet brought the team all the way back, made a throw to Friarworth at the end that was a seed, a great throw, better defensive play. Not, for, not. I'm not going to put this on Friarworth for not making the catch. Great throw, would have been a catch, better defensive play to punch it out. Ben deserved better. But it, the thing I take away from this game, and I've talked about this a lot, I feel like Tomlin, you feel like the divorce is imminent. Tomlin seems to have not gotten through to everybody. Well, one guy he hasn't gotten through to clearly is Chase Claypool. This moron catches a pass, as you see it, 28 seconds left for a first down, and decides to celebrate as opposed to get back to the line so they can spike it and save for another play. Wasted five seconds. Did not cost them the game cost him another play and a chance to win the game, didn't cost him the game. But if you're Chase Claypool, and after the game, the fact he was non-repentant, this is a guy that's been benched for behavior before, this moron's got to go. He's a great talent. Can't win with him. Remember the old rant by former 49ers coach Mike Singletary? Can't win with him. Can't have it. Can't have it. Can't win with him. You can't win with Chase Claypool. He is a great talent. He could become a great wide receiver. But guys like him who show the propensity to be selfish generally don't become less selfish as they go through their career. They get more selfish, more self-involved because success comes and they think they're even better. See Antonio Brown. The Steelers have a lot of work to do this offseason, and this season isn't over. At 6-6-1, six, six, and one, they're right in the thick of the NFC North and could become a playoff game, a playoff team. But they're not going to do it because of Chase Claypool. They'll do it in spite of players like him. But Ben, best game in at least three years. Atlanta beat Carolina. Did anyone watch this game? Does anyone care about there are about four or five teams in the league: Atlanta, Carolina, the Giants, the Jets. I'm probably missing a couple more that are just unwatchable. The Texans. Why would? Why does anyone watch those games? The NFL is all about competitive balance, and Carolina is a decent team. Atlanta's got some talent, certainly, but overall, they're just boring. It's just really boring football. It's not good. By the way, the, Par- the Panthers, this is how their season's going. They're looking at employing another week of a two-quarterback system. P.J. Walker and Cam Newton. What's the old saying? When you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one? Yeah, that's very much the situation there. Browns beat the Ravens. Big win for the Browns. Baker Mayfield didn't have a very good game again. There wasn't a great offensive production by the browns lamar jackson got hurt which impacted this game greatly but miles garrett has become the guy he was drafted to be he is a dominant defensive end the strip sack that he picked up and ran for a touchdown the athleticism involved there guy is really really good i mentioned how close things are in the north baltimore's the leader at eight and six eight and five i'm sorry Cleveland-Cincinnati game back at 7 and 6 and then Pittsburgh. Just an unbelievable unbelievably tight division. It's going to be great to see how this one plays out. I wouldn't be surprised if any one of those teams comes out of there and wins the division. Should be really interesting. Another game that was bar- borderline unwatchable. Seattle beat te- the Texans. Texans, they are terrible. But Davis Mills had 331 yards and a touchdown, no interceptions. Maybe there's something there. Oh, one other question about the Texans. Why didn't they do anything with Deshaun Watson at the trade deadline? Why are they still paying that guy not to play? Do they really think they're going to get three first-round picks for him? Unbelievable. Unbelievably bad team management there. Kid City beat the Raiders 48 to 9, and it was 35 to 3 at the half. The Raiders decided that it was a good idea to dance at midfield on the Chiefs logo. Now, look, this to me is one of those college things you don't do. Did it matter? Is it why Kid City blew out the Raiders? The Raiders are having a tough year anyway. They've got so much going on negatively. But if you're the Raiders, what are you doing? Why poke the bear? It just didn't seem to make much sense to me that you would do that. But when you fall behind 35 to nothing quickly, yeah. Oh, and by the way, AFC fans, the Chiefs look like they're getting in gear at the right time of year. Every year this time of year, somebody gets hot, goes on a string, and we end up seeing them in the Super Bowl. Wouldn't shock me if that's the case with Kansas City this year. Saints beat the Jets 30-9. to Jets fans, I'm not sure Zach Wilson's the guy. I'm not sure there's been any improvement from day one. Another poor day for him. Look, the Saints are very good. That's a tough test. But complete 50% of your passes. How about that? Take a baby step. Show me something that makes me think there's something there. Speaking of, Show me something. Titans shut out the Jags. Urban Meyer, does he even want to be there anymore? I mean, this is getting weirder and weirder. I was convinced this was going to be a great thing with he and Trevor Lawrence. Urban Meyer needs to be fired today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today. Because the cancer that is in that locker room needs to be cut out before you ruin Trevor Lawrence. He's the cancer. Last week apparently challenged each one of his assistants about the resume and the success that they've had of the resume. Began a team meeting by talking about how the fact he's always been a winner. His resume shows that he's a champion and a winner. And went around the room and asked them person by person To defend their resume. Way to build team unity, coach. He's got to go. I never thought it would get this ugly. I never thought it would go bad. It seemed like a good hire. Shad Khan, do the right thing, man. Save your quarterback because this guy is killing him. You get cancer, you got to cut it out. Jags have cancer. They got to cut it out. Cowboys beat the Washington football team in a matchup that the Washington football team had a chance to get back in the division. The Cowboys' defense won this game. Now, I I watched Dak Prescott throw the ball, and I don't know if he's hurt. We None of us will. He's not been the same since a calf injury that he suffered a few weeks ago. His ball looks like it's lost its zip. It hangs in the air. It's, it's it's just, there's no drive on the ball. He's not right. They also lost Tyron Smith. Tyron Smith likely won't play this week. The Cowboys aren't the same team without Tyron Smith at left tackle. He got rolled up on, re injured his ankle. The running game's not good because Zeke is hurt. He's just simply a shell of what he should be. Tony Pollard missed the game because he's got a torn plantar fascia, fascia or whatever it's called. It's a bad situation offensively. That said, this Cowboys defense had, for only the second time all year, their three big pass rushes play. Micah Parsons is easily the defensive rookie of the year. He might be the NFL defensive player of the year. This kid, and I won't say he reminds me of, but I was trying to think of a rookie linebacker that had the impact that this guy does. And no, I'm not going to say Lawrence Taylor. I'm not. Don't, Don't worry. I'm not that far overboard. But if you remember correctly, back in the Bills' glory day, when they had Bruce Smith, they drafted Shane Conlon, and they went out and traded for Cornelius Bennett. Bennett's impact changed that defense. Cowboys have had Demarcus Lawrence. Randy Gregory's finally out of suspension and he was injured back. So you've got two very good defensive ends. You add a freak athlete and, and a gadget like Micah Parsons, who is as good a defensive player to come into the league literally in the last four or five years. And, and the Bosa boys have come in since then and they've been immediate, impactful players. Obviously, Aaron Donald is the best defensive player in the league. Micah Parsons is doing things that guys haven't done unless their name is Lawrence Taylor. I won't compare him to Taylor because he's the best defensive player I've ever seen in my life. But Parsons has been great. And with Lawrence, with Gregory, and Vanderush playing healthy, that defense is very good, and that defense, not Dak Prescott in the offense, that defense is good enough, in my opinion, to win a championship because they create turnovers. Look, they don't stop the run particularly well, although getting Gallimore back, kid they drafted last year at Oklahoma who made his debut on Sunday, getting him back, there's a chance. It's coming. If they figure out the offense, if Dak Gets straightened out. If they get Tyron Smith back, if Zeke gets healthy, who knows? But defensively, wow. Fun to watch if you're a Cowboy fan. Detroit played Denver, in Denver, shortly after Demarius Thomas died unexpectedly at age 33. Thomas, who was a very good wide receiver, was reportedly even a better man teammates and and opponents alike spoke about what the man Demarius Thomas was and a real real tragedy but on Sunday pretty cool moment you don't often see this in professional sports the Broncos lined up with only 10 guys on the first play of the game they'd cleared this with Detroit Dan Campbell to his credit absolutely do it they took a delay-a-game penalty, leaving the wide receiver position empty for the first play of the game. Detroit declined the penalty. Class act by Detroit, great moment by the Broncos to certainly honor their fallen star. Other than that, that game really meant very little. The Chargers whooped up on the Giants, and the Giants are just a terrible NFL team right now, Justin Herbert had a throw that you look at and you go, this guy, just the ceiling on him is so high. Three touchdowns, big day. What made it even more impressive, in my opinion, Mike Williams missed the game. Keenan Allen missed the game. Yeah, here's Justin Herbert tearing up. The Giants have a decent defense, tearing up the Giants easily without his two best wide receivers. Very impressive. Jimmy G turned in a very good performance in overtime on Sunday. Jimmy G's one of those guys who, who seems to play well at crunch time, even if he doesn't play well the rest of the game. Joe Burrow had another really good game. Cincinnati, San Francisco. This was a really good game that most people didn't see because we were all watching the Buffalo game. But this is a game that's huge because if Cincinnati wins that game, they scored in overtime, they kicked a field goal, but ended up giving the touchdown pass up to Brandon Ayuk that beat them. If Cincy wins that game, they're then tied for Baltimore for the division lead in the North. Of course they didn't. Packers beat the Bears. Aaron Rodgers, four touchdowns, 341. But I think the story in, in Green Bay, look, Rodgers is great and, Probably going to end up winning the MVP, either Higgy or Brady. But when you have A.J. Dillon, big physical back, and Aaron Jones, and a good defense, well, you know things are going to get cold and nasty in Green Bay. You know it's going to happen. So therefore, being able to run the ball and being physical is a huge part of the success long term. Watch out for Green Bay if they get home field advantage. Watch out for them anyway, but those January games in Green Bay could be huge. Last night, the Rams beat the Cards 30-23. to Cardinals at home just aren't the same team. Debacle at the end of the game, Kyler Murray not knowing what to do. It brought me back to last year when Sean McDermott called a timeout before the DeAndre Hopkins hail mary if you remember that play the play but they were same situation out of timeouts scrambling mcdermott as he does so often calls a defensive timeout last night showed why you don't do that because kyler murray didn't know what the hell to do everyone expected him to spike it he was going to throw it his offensive line didn't bother to block when you don't block aaron donald that happens donald gets a sack the other thing that stood out last night, and it stood out all year, Cooper Cup's the best receiver in the NFL. Cooper Cup last night, 13 catches, 123 yards. For the season, he's up to 113 catches, 1,489 yards. He's got a chance for a 2,000 yard season. He's got 12 touchdowns, third round pick in 2017. Cooper Cup out of Eastern Washington was the 68th pick overall 68th by the way that year first year of Sean McDermott's draft Trey White after he traded down excellent pick second round number 37 five picks into the second round Zay Jones going into that draft I was touting Cooper Cup because I loved what I saw of him when I watched an Eastern Washington game one night how he was always open. Yet, you can't tell me the Bills didn't miss on Zay Jones. And you could even make the argument that Deion Dawkins is 63. Who would you rather have right now, Deion Dawkins or Cooper Cup? Deion's a nice player, he's not a superstar. Cooper Cup's a superstar. Coaches in trouble, add Urban Meyer to the list of the possible one and duns. He's got to go, right? Cully's got to go. Salah's got to go. Three coaches, I think, have to go and be one and duns. really, really uh, going to be an interesting Black Monday in january when the season ends and coaches decide to move on i think a legend goes tomlin i think three one and duns which is very unusual and then of course the matt naggies of the world the war of attrition will finally get them not a good week for syracuse university basketball the orange lost two games they lost to villanova at the garden last tuesday night this is a game they led at halftime Villanova didn't shoot well in the first half, and Syracuse only had a three-point lead. I knew right then this game was in trouble. This is a game Jimmy Beheim showed that old man game and played very well. Buddy Beheim played horrible, shot three of 15. You know Buddy Beheim's not shooting well when in the second half he had a wide-open look at a three-feet set, nobody within 10 feet of him, and he clanked it. That's not Buddy Beheim. He's not shooting the ball well. It hurt them. In this game, though, the difference in this game, as it's been in every Syracuse loss, it's been the rebounding. They were out-rebounded 57-36. to 36. I told you last week. They've been out-rebounded in every one of their losses so far this year. They've only won one game that they've been out-rebounded in. Then they played on Saturday against Georgetown. They're up 10 at the half in this game. Ended up losing 79-75. Again out rebounded. This one, they had Buddy Bayheim playing a little better. JG three played pretty well. It's just been an up and down year, mainly a down year. The orange are now five and five in the early part of December. The the old Jimmy Bayheim cupcake schedule, this was not, but that Colgate loss is going to stand out and hurt them as they go through this week. They're off until Saturday because of finals week. They play Lehigh on Saturday, should be a win there. Following Tuesday, they play Cornell, get to seven and five, and then the. ACC season starts in earnest on December 29th when they host Georgia Tech. So the Orange already in trouble. They're not even close to being on the bubble at this point. Going to take a lot of improvement as they go through this year. And I don't know how things improve. And I got to throw this out there too. After Villanova, Beheim said that they ran out of gas. Well, the Orange only play eight players. Samir Torrance, Plays, Frank Anselm t- plays, and Benny Williams plays. That's it. You play eight guys. Those guys don't play very much other than Anselm. Torrance, probably about 10 minutes a game, spelling buddy and JG3. You probably get about five minutes a game right now from Benny Williams. But isn't it the coach's job to either create a situation where you're developing players who can play, so you can rest your starters, or finding better talent to sub in. This is a very weak group beyond the first four or five players, and and we can argue whether or not they're weak. Falls on behan Think about it. Two of his five starters, he didn't have to leave his house to recruit. It's been a problem. It continues to be a problem, and it will be a problem. I told you I was going to mention the Sabres. I haven't been paying much attention because I've been so immersed in the bills and now the orange are playing and well, no, there's no baseball. Anyway, haven't been paying much attention. The Sabres this year, you know, it's a bad year already when you played five goalies, they played five goalies in their first 23 games. They're eight and 15 overall. They're sixth in the Atlantic division. They've lost 11 of 12. However, however, this is a different team. This is a better team. It's a much more interesting team. They play hard. They don't have any talent. I shouldn't say any. They don't have very much talent. Don Granado's doing a very good job with what he has to work with. This is what we expected, and I'll give them this. As opposed to other years where you're disappointed by what you see, This year, you should almost be encouraged because they do compete every night. They're not good enough to win, but they're out there competing, and I think they found a coach that they can win with eventually, if, Hugh Jeff, if you could get him some talent to play. Certainly need to do that. Tenants-wise, things are getting there. They did have the 110,000 people night at Key Bank Arena, but five of the last six have been over 9,000. So that's 50% capacity. So that's better, right, Terry and Kim? Yeah, how about this? The Sabres, Forbes valued all the NHL teams recently. They're now valued at over a half a billion dollars, over $500 million. The Pagulas paid about 170 for them. So in the 10, 11 years that they've ruined this franchise, they've doubled their money. Should order the super yacht now, can pay for it, sell the Sabres, buy a boat. This weekend, we all get a treat. Well, if you're a golf fan, you get a treat. Yeah, I know it's going to be 60 on Thursday in upstate New York, but that's not the treat I'm talking about. When Tiger Woods crashed his car and we didn't know if he was going to live, lose a leg, ever walk again, all of those things were real possibilities, well- Tiger did live. He is walking again and has been hitting golf balls and doing some media appearances. This weekend, he's actually going to tee it up in an event. I didn't say PGA Tour event. It's an event. It's the PNC Father-Son Challenge. We saw this last year. His son, Charlie, who's about as cute as Tiger is unlikable, is fun to watch. And his mannerisms are so Tiger-esque. I, I really look forward to it. In an interview recently with Golf Digest, Tiger said that Charlie broke 80. He's moved back to a set of tees. They're going to play this weekend. They play at the Ritz-Carlton Resort down in Orlando. And this is a fun event. Again, you see fathers and sons and sometimes daughters as well. It's family event. It's not about winning unless you're one of the top two and then you try to win. But to see Tiger and Charlie having a good time out on the golf course, Tiger's certainly not been perfect, and for much of his career has been a complete a-hole, and I get that. But the only thing that really matters, true legacy, how his kids feel? And watching Charlie and Tiger, it's pretty apparent that Charlie thinks quite a bit of his dad. So maybe he's a failure in a lot of ways, definitely as a husband, he was a great golfer, but his most important job is being a dad. Sure looks like he hasn't been a failure there. And I look forward to watching he and his son have a good time teeing it up. I don't care if Tiger hits anything close to a good drive or a good shot. Just good to see him back out there playing. And good to see him having fun being a dad. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.